Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're going to delve into the Bible. We're going to look at uh, what your scripture teaches, the rich truths on the sacraments. Lord, we pray that we would have an earnest heart, an excited heart, uh, an open heart. And Lord, we pray that you would really challenge us and show us ultimately the beautiful gift of Christ that we have uh, in these sacraments. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so... We're continuing our series on uh, baptism, and remember, just as a, a review, just making sure. Um, we're looking at what is a sacrament, right? And we saw that a sacrament is a visible grace, uh, sorry, a visible sign of an invisible grace. And then, if we could just show this graphically, right? Here's my eye. <laughs> um, can you see the invisible grace? No, of course not, because it's invisible. But God gives us a visible sign. Right, so that we can see the sign, and therefore, by that way, we can understand and see sort of the invisible grace. All right, does that make sense? And so, um, let's review point number A baptism is a New Testament sacrament corresponding to uh, Old Testament circumcision. And so, uh, whoops. So here's circumcision, and we saw that it is replaced, or we can say um, fulfilled by baptism in the New Testament, okay? And so we're trying to understand baptism first by trying to understand circumcision, right? Because they're interconnected, right? The whole Bible, there's this wonderful unity and intersection, all right? And so um, point number B, so what is circumcision? Circumcision is not an ethnic marker of being Jewish, but the outward sign of salvation, right? And so, uh, let me read to you Romans 4.11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. Right? So what is circumcision ultimately pointing to? Is it about being, is it for Hebrews only? Is it for Jews only? No. Circumcision is an outward sign of salvation, right? Of righteousness. Okay? Does that make sense? And then point number C, in circumcision, the foreskin is cut off, symbolizing the cutting off of sin, right? Which is really a picture of salvation. And we, we're gonna look at Jeremiah 4.4. Circumcise yourselves therefore to the Lord, Remove the foreskin of your heart, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we saw, right, that, surf, that foreskin, anatomically speaking, is only found on the male origin. And yet, the Bible speaks of the foreskin of your heart. What is that, right? The foreskin is a symbol of sin. And in circumcision, you're cutting off the sin, right? You're cutting off uh, the unrighteousness in your life so that you're righteous, so that you're saved, okay? Are there any questions about the review? Uh, we, we, we looked at all this last week, right? So this should all be familiar. Okay, all right, so let's look at point number one. So if it's, if it's the case that circumcision is a sign of salvation and righteousness, okay, it naturally follows that circumcision is a sign of belonging to the people of God, okay? And so let's look at Genesis uh, chapter 17. Um, 
And let me just, uh, well, let's just read it, actually. Uh, Marshall, can I have you read Genesis 17? And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right, great. Two things I want to point out to you about Genesis 17 and the Abrahamic covenant. Notice that circumcision is not only for Jewish people, not only for Hebrews. How do we know that? Because God says the foreign slaves who are in your household are also to be circumcised, right? So people who are not Jewish, if they're in your household, if they're slaves, they are to be circumcised, right? But the second thing, and here, here's what I really want to focus on, look at verse 14, and there's kind of like a play on words there, right? Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. So if he doesn't cut off his foreskin, he'll be cut off from the people of God, right? And so what we learn here then is that uncircumcision, to be uncircumcised, is to be in the world, right? And we can say the pagan world. But if you're circumcised, it's to be in the people of God. All right? And how do you enter the people of God, right? What does Genesis 17 say? It says it's through circumcision. Okay? So that if you are in the world, in the pagan world, you enter into the people of God through circumcision. Does that make sense? Does that paradigm make sense? Okay? Because circumcision is a sign of belonging to the people of God. It's a sign in formal theology. It's a, it's a covenant sign, a sign of being in the covenant people, okay? Let's look at that again uh, in Ephesians 2. That's the exact, same, that's the exact uh, uh, presupposition that Paul makes in Ephesians 2. Can I have Meredith read Ephesians 2? Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, the uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were yeah, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, you Christians, remember you used to be called the uncircumcised. You used to be outside of Christ, right? Alienated from Christ. Or I think it, Paul says separated from Christ. And on the inside is what? The promise of salvation, right? The, prom the covenants of promise. Does that make sense? 
circumcision marks if you belong to the people of God, and if you're not circumcised, you're outside, right? You're outside of the promises, you're outside of salvation, you're outside of, the, of, of Israel. Does that make sense? Any questions there? No? All right. Let's go on to the next page. And this is really more just supporting verses for this paradigm. Because this is a very important paradigm to understanding circumcision. The fact that it's a, it's a marker of belonging to the people of God. Right? Circumcision is the boundary line between God's holy people and the pagan world. It is a sign of covenant membership of belonging to the people of God. And so let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 34. And I've got to set the story up a little bit. This is the story of the rape of Dinah. Who, who, who is familiar with that story? Anyone? Okay. So Dinah is... Uh, you know, Jacob has 12 sons. You, did you also know he had a 13th child, a daughter, Dinah? And the story goes that Dinah, uh, there's, this, uh, there's this Gentile pagan named Shechem. And Shechem spots Dinah, and he really likes her. And so he does what men do sometimes, which is he takes her forcefully. He rapes her. And so this is a great dishonor to Dinah. But Shechem really likes Dinah, so he's, he goes to Jacob's son and he says, I want to marry Dinah. But Jacob's sons are angry. They're, they're so mad, they want to take revenge and they want to kill Shechem. And so they decide to have this little scheme. They tell Shechem, look, we can't marry because the Bible specifically prohibits us from marrying pagans, from marrying non-believers, right? But I tell you what, if you become circumcised, then that's the sign that you're converting and that's a sign that you're coming into the people of God and we'll be one people and therefore we can marry. And then the crafty plan is that when all the men in Shechem's clan and his family are circumcised and they're healing, then Jacob's son, surprise attack, kills all their people, right? Because they can't really fight because they're recovering, right, from their surgery. And so let's look, and so, you know, so that's the whole scheme, but I want you to notice the presupposition behind the whole scheme, right? Which is what is circumcision all about? So let's read uh, Genesis 34. Can I have Jeff read it? The sons of Jacob answered Jacob and his father Hamlet deceitfully because he had the father's sister dying. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we will agree with you, that you will become as we are by every man among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be, so, be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Okay. <clears throat> what is the argument the sons of Jacob make? They say, the Bible tells us we cannot intermarry, right? And uh, I put there Exodus 34, we won't read it, but it, the Bible very specifically says, do not marry an unbeliever. So the people in the world and the people of God cannot marry. But the sons of Jacob say, but if you take on the sign of circumcision, that's how you come in. And what do they say in uh, verse 16? And when you become circumcised, we will be one people. And once we're one people, even though you're not Jewish, it doesn't matter, we can now marry. We can, we can marry your daughters, you can marry our daughters. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. So circumcision is a sign of belonging to the people of God. Uh, let's look at Exodus chapter 12, another supporting verse. And here the question is, who can eat the Passover? Okay. Who can eat the Passover? Uh, let's 
have Tommy read Exodus 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised it. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, and you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all its males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. We shall be as a native of the land. No uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Yeah, so what is this passage telling us? It's telling us that the Passover is only for the people of God. And if there is a foreigner who lives in the world, right, who's a paganer, no foreigner may eat of the Passover. Is it because only Jewish ethnic Jews can eat the Passover? No. Right? Because there is a provision. If the foreigner <coughs> becomes circumcised, he may eat of the Passover. Because then he becomes, he, he converts in essence. Right? He believes in the God of Israel. He becomes the people of God and therefore he can partake of the Passover. Does that make sense? Does everyone understand now? I might have been beating uh, the horse picking it for a long time, but it's very important that we understand that paradigm, right? The circumcision is a sign of the long. Alright. Now here is where it gets challenging, right? Here's where uh, your noodle should really start to be cooked. Okay? Point number three. <coughs> the covenant community, right, the people of God includes the children of believers. Here's the question. Where are the children of believers in this scheme? Are the children of believers here? In the people of God? Or are they here in the pagan world? And what does the Bible say? The Bible tells us that the children of believers are not in the world, but they're here inside. They're inside the covenant community. They're, in, they're, they're, they're considered the people of God, all right? And where do we see that? Genesis 17, right? We just read that. What does God say to Abraham? He says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. In other words, infants are to receive the sign of circumcision. Okay? Now, we see this throughout the Bible, and I could you know, give you like 20 verses, but just to give you just a few, that the, the Old Testament always assumes that the children of believers are inside the covenant community. All right, let's read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, can I have Eric read it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk with them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Right? You shall teach all... Uh, all the teachings of, of, of uh, the Old Testament, you, you, shall, you, you shall teach about the grace that God gives to the people of God to your children, right? They're inside. They're, they're part of the people. Let's read Psalm uh, 103. Uh, Carolyn? But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to ch children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. Yeah, throughout the generations. Not only to the children of believers, but to the children's children of believers, to the grandchildren of believers, and
that I would say the principle goes on and on and on and on. Throughout the generations, all the children belong to the people of God, okay? Now, let's turn to the next page. Ah, here's where the rub begins, right? Here's where the pickle starts. You know, here's where your brain should really be flipping out, okay? Because point number four, how can infants be included when they do not have faith? How can infants be included when they do not have faith? And to drive home that point, let's look at Romans chapter four again, right? We've been referring to this verse over and over. Paul writes, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness, right? That he had by faith while he was still circumcised. What is Paul telling us? When did Abraham receive circumcision? When, when was he circumcised? After, after faith. After faith. Right? After he had faith. He received the righteousness by faith. He was circumcised. If that's the case, why does God command in Genesis 17 for children, for Abraham's children, to also be circumcised. Do they have faith? No. I look at little Judah. What does he know? I don't even think he knows that I'm his dad at this point. <laughs> he doesn't know anything. Infants who are eight days old know squat. And yet God tells them to be circumcised. And so what is going on? And I think this is a real, real puzzle, you know? This is a real challenge, you know. In some ways, you know, scripture is so mysterious. We have the naked facts of the case, and then we have to sort of try to understand what God is doing with circumcision after we see the data. Do you know what I'm saying? It, it's almost like we're putting together the theory after we see that the children of Abraham are also to be circumcised. So how are we supposed to understand this? And this is gonna be really hard to get, okay? So I want you guys to be really patient. You know, don't jump to conclusions or don't jump to resistance, but just hear the case out, okay? So this is the answer. The answer is the way God deals with people, okay? Let me write this down, because it's very important. God deals with humanity, not as individuals, but as families. Okay? That's the answer. God deals with humanity, not as individuals, but as families. And so here's the answer. Again, I wrote it down for you. The parents act as the representative head of the household. In other words, the parents act as the representative of the child, and their faith counts for the child. Okay? And so here's the paradigm. Here you have the head of the household. Okay? And whatever happens to him, or whatever he decides, applies to his little children. Okay? He's the representative for his children. Does that make sense? Okay? And we see that, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments. Scott, can I have you read Deuteronomy 5? Uh, you should not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, 
sunset is on the earth beneath, for that is in the water of the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you hear what God is saying in the Ten Commandments? God says, if you break the Ten Commandments, what will happen? Your iniquity will be visited down through the generations. Your children will suffer the consequences of your sin. And then God says in verse 10, but if you obey, then God will show steadfast love to thousands. And there, it's an ellipsis, thousands of generations. And you know, that really upsets us. That rubs us the wrong way. Because we say, that's not fair. You shouldn't be condemned based on what your dad did. You should be condemned based on what you personally do. Why should it be that whoever, whatever your father does, whatever the head of the household does, or whatever your grandfather does, should affect you? And the reason why this rubs us so wrong is because we're modern people, and in the modern people, we have an individualistic culture. Okay? We have an individualistic culture, which means you are your own person. What your father does has nothing to do with you. And what you do has nothing to do with your family or nothing to do with your father. But the Bible presupposes not an individualistic culture, but a communal culture. And some of you are saying this sounds very similar to Asian culture. This is a traditional culture, okay? Which is that what happens to you happens to your family. And what happens to your family happens to you. Your father, his decisions are your decisions. Does that make sense? Now if we say, that's so unfair, that's not right, that is exactly the way salvation works. Okay? Let's read uh, Romans 5. Um, can I have Marianne read Romans 5? Okay. What is this verse saying, right? By the one man's disobedience, who is Paul talking about? Adam. When Adam was in the garden, his disobedience condemned all of humanity. So that all of humanity was plunged into sin and death. Were we personally there? No. So why should it be that Adam's decision counts for us? Because he's our representative head. God doesn't deal with us as individuals. He deals with us as families. But the gospel is better than the bad news. Because Christ is our new representative. He's our second Adam. And because of his obedience, because of his perfect righteousness, we who are under him are credited with his righteousness and we're saved. What does this, which is the story of salvation, look like? It looks like that, right? That's how salvation works. Does that make sense? It's not our own righteousness that saves us, but Christ's righteousness. If you say, no, 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 I hate this communal culture. I really just want to be an individualist. Okay, then. Obey the law perfectly and you will enter heaven. No? Then you're going to run to the communal culture and say, I need a representative head. I need Christ. Right? If you say that my head has nothing to do with me, then you're condemned, you're lost. 
The only way you can be saved is if this representative principle is true. Does that make sense? And we see this again and again throughout the Bible. Let me just point out a few verses. Can I have um, how we, uh, Genesis 7? Okay, remember the story of Noah's ark? Noah was righteous, right? Righteous in God, uh, righteous, you know, relatively speaking. He was righteous in the land. And so God saves all of Noah's family. Wait a minute. Only Noah was righteous. Why is his entire family saved? Because that's how the Bible works. He deals with you as families, not as individuals. He doesn't just save Noah, because Noah alone is righteous. He saves Noah's family. Does that make sense? All right, let's read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Can I have Winnie read that? Alright, what is this passage saying? The children of your of a believer, even if only one parent is a believer, are they in the world unclean? Are they unclean? Or are they inside the people of God? Are they holy? Paul says the children of at least one believer is holy. Is inside the people of God. Okay? Now, are there any questions? I remember someone said last week. You didn't give us any chance to ask any questions. So, uh, what do you guys think, Jeff? What does it mean the unbelieving husband is made of? The unbelieving husband is also in some degree connected because of his believing wife. He's also somehow connected. But because he can make his own decision, he can reject the gospel. He's not inside the people of God. But to some degree, he's made holy, right? So let's talk about this very practically. You know, if, uh, if Jeff, you happen to have an unbelieving wife, just by virtue of the fact that you're a believer, she's going to receive some blessings, right? She's going to hear the gospel. She's going to hear you talk about the Bible. She, you're going to pray for her. So all of these benefits go. But it's not the same thing as for the children. And they're both made holy. They're both made holy. Well... For the children, they don't really have volition, or they don't have a choice, right? They can't decide on their own. So is it possible that the children, right, when they grow up, can they go outside the people of God? Can they reject? They can leave, of course. Adults can leave, children cannot. Does that make sense? Because children don't make any decisions, you know? Is Judah going to say one day to me, I hate you, Dad. I'm just going to live on my own. Maybe, but not until he's way older. For now, he's not going to say anything. I tell you that you go here, he will go there. <laughs> right? Right. Mainly because I'll just put him there. And he'll just like kick around and do nothing but just stay there. Does that make sense? To some degree, I mean, uh, uh, what is it? Children cannot make their own decision, but adults can. And so adults can leave, but children can. Okay, that's a good question. Or did that satisfy you, Jeff? No. No? <laughs> yeah, Carolyn? I, I guess uh, following that, does it, does it presuppose that the wife or the husband, the believing wife or husband is able to convert to spouse? <laughs> yes. Right? I mean, so in order for an, an unbelieving adult or spouse to be inside the people of God, they have to have faith and they have to cross over and they have to convert. But right. children, 
that, that decision's made for them. But I think the distinction is between the ability to actually convert the, the unbelieving spouse to Hafei, mm. where you said that it could be that you have a believer and an unbeliever mm -hmm. that are wed, and the unbeliever still maybe is not true, does not truly have faith, but somehow there's that connection because the believer is giving. Yeah, there's a connection, exactly. But I wouldn't say the, the connection is the same as a child. Right, correct. Yeah. And I think here, it's not that we have this pre-commitment to some theory about children. We're just dealing with the facts on the ground, okay? This rubs me the wrong way because I'm a modern American individualist, all right? Whatever my dad does, I don't want it to affect me. Whatever my mom does, the cookie things they might do, I'm like, that's them, right? And so it bothers me. But how do we deal with Genesis 17? God tells Abraham, circumcise not just all the believing adults, but circumcise the eight-year-old, eight-day-old infants in your household. Right? How do we deal with that? How do we explain that? We either say they must have faith. How is that possible? Or we have to understand that God is dealing with a communal culture. There's a representative head. Does that make sense? Any other questions? Those are great questions. All right, point number five then. But does that mean that simply because the head of the household is saved, everyone under him is also saved? All right? And that's a real question. And the answer is no. Just because you're circumcised does not mean you're automatically saved. Remember, we looked at this, right? It's a sign. It's not the reality by itself. And the children who are circumcised, circumcised have to one day take hold of the reality of themselves and they have to believe the promises, right? And the, and the example that I give here is from uh, Romans chapter 9. Remember Isaac, right? Isaac had two sons. Jacob and Esau. Okay? What does God say in Romans 9? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now here's the question. Were both Jacob and Esau circumcised? Yes. Esau was circumcised. And yet, God says, I hated him. Because Esau had no faith. And Jacob had faith. Okay? And so even though you're circumcised, it doesn't mean you're going to be saved. You have to have faith. Only Jacob was saved, even though both were circumcised. Does that make sense? And so remember from last week, right? This is the master paradigm. Okay? That circumcision by itself does not save, and not everyone who is circumcised is saved, right? And so we look at this paradigm of the invisible, visible church. Okay? This is the visible church. This is the invisible church. When you're circumcised, where are you? You're in the visible church, right? This is, the, this is all those who are circumcised. If you're circumcised, does that mean you're saved? No. Only those who are in the invisible church are saved. So therefore, where is Jacob and Esau? 
here's Jacob. He has the sign of the visible church. He's circumcised and he's saved. Where's Esau? Esau's here. He's, he has the visible sign of circumcision, but there's a disconnect between the sign and the inward reality. He doesn't have faith. He doesn't have the grace in his heart. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Uh, final point, point number six. If infant circumcision doesn't mean the baby is guaranteed salvation, why do we even circumcise at all? Wouldn't it be better to wait until the baby actually expresses faith before circumcising him? I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Shouldn't we wait till Abraham's children grow up and if they express faith, then and only then do we circumcise them. Why do we circumcise them when they're eight days old when they could turn out to be an Esau? And they could repudiate the faith and therefore doesn't that sort of cheapen the sign, right? Doesn't that take away from the sign? And the answer is that circumcision is not only a sign but a seal. Let's read Romans 4.11 again. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. We looked at this before, right? What is a seal? Does anyone remember? What is a seal? Huh? A promise. That's right. It's a promise. It's a pledge. Okay? Circumcision is not only a sign, but it's a promise. And that's the benefit. And, and remember we saw that that benefits us as adults, but it also benefits the children of believers. So that when they see the sign, they realize it's also a promise. So that they can take hold of what is already there. So they can realize the truth, which is that they are a child of God. Does that make sense? It has benefit for the children of believers because it, it marks them as the people of God. It tells them, you're not out there in the pagan world, but you're inside the people of God and God loves you and you're a child of God. And so therefore, believe what is already yours. Be who you are. Don't be an Esau to Jacob, right? And I think part of the problem with wanting uh, to only, be, uh, only give circumcision to adult believers is that you're forgetting this distinction between the visible, invisible church and the visible church. Because circumcision is a sign of that you belong in the visible people of God. But if you say, I only want to circumcise people who are in the invisible church, right, then you're, you're, you're destroying the distinction, right? You're basically saying there is, there is no difference Let's only circumcise these people. Does that make sense? Circumcision only circumcision in the Bible applies to the visible church, not the invisible church. If you say, I only want to make sure they rock solid believe and I know for sure they're saved, then you're trying to make circumcision move it to here. And therefore there is no distinction then. That means everyone who's in the church is saved, and everyone who's saved is in the church. Is that true though? No. That means everyone who's circumcised is saved and everyone who's saved is circumcised. Is that true? No. We know that not everyone who's circumcised is saved, not everyone who's saved is circumcised. There has to be this distinction. There are Esau's and there is Jacob's. If we say, though, only if they're absolutely saved, only if they're an adult and they believe for sure, then we're collapsing it. Does that make sense? Are there any questions or any thoughts or comments? I have a question that I have for a long time. Okay. Regarding point number five. So when when Paul preaches to the was it the Philippian jailer, he yeah. says, 
believe in the Lord Jesus, you and your family will be saved. Yeah. You and your household. Yeah. What does he mean? So here, here comes the follow-up question. All we've been looking at is circumcision in the Old Testament. Does this apply in the New Testament? That's next week. All I'm looking at is circumcision right now. Okay? I'm not talking about baptism. I'm not talking about the New Testament. All I'm talking about is Old Testament circumcision. Any other questions? So you're not answering my question? <laughs> you have to come back. <laughs> I promise you I will answer that question. Does, does God work the same way in the New Testament as he does in the Old Testament in terms of dealing with this people? Um, so why is it bad or undesirable to try to... Collapse the two? Yeah. Because I think we're trying to be God then. We're trying to say, I want to know for sure who is saved. But can we know? We can't. You know, everyone here is in the visible church. Does that mean, aha, you're saved, and that means everyone outside is not saved? We don't know. Jesus says, uh, Jesus says, right, there are sheep and goats. <coughs> who are the goats? The goats are the people with the visible sign, and yet they're not saved. Right? So if we want to collapse it, we're basically saying, Jesus I don't, want to, I don't want to listen. I want to be God. I want to know with my x-ray vision into the heart. You know, The fact that the visible, uh, invisible and visible distinction is true tells us that sometimes the sign and the invisible, invisible thing, there's a disconnect. And that has to be the case. Otherwise, we're God. Only God knows. You don't know. So do I know you're saved? I don't know. I can't see into your heart. I can see your visible sign. Are there, is there, do you have any follow-up question or anything? Are there any other questions? All right. Let me close by saying this, okay? I know this was maybe paradigm-busting for you, okay? And I know maybe you're asking, what does this mean for baptism? And I just want to ask you to withhold sort of leaping to conclusions about baptism. All I'm talking about right now is circumcision. All I want us to do is just try to understand how does circumcision work in the Old Testament. And we have the fact that Abraham was a circumcised eight-day-old infant. And so, you know, it's difficult. Okay, but I hope it's challenging and I hope it's something that you can think about. Um, and I also want to say this, that I want to emphasize once again that whatever uh, I say about circumcision and or baptism, it doesn't mean that you have to agree in order to belong to the church. I want to emphasize this very strongly, okay? There are core issues like the gospel, and then there are peripheral issues like baptism, like charismatic gifts, you know, like end times. And these things you can disagree. You can disagree with me. That's okay. You know, there are tons of good, honest, thoughtful Christians who disagree. And that's okay. We can still be together. You know, we can still be united. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we thank you that you give us visible signs of our of the grace that we have. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray that uh, we would really take to heart the seal aspect, the fact that it's a pledge and it's a promise, um, and that we can be encouraged. We, we, we can look at our sign, which is baptism, and know that you love us, that you cleanse us of our sins. Uh, we pray all this in Christ's name.